he actually became like the first among all citizens of the internet to go and show that we don't have to play this ancient game of statism anymore. We now have the internet, this absolutely absurd technology that if you told anybody about 100 years ago, they would think you were insane. But we actually have that for everybody. And at what point in time do we say it's time to use the internet as the new political vehicle to help organize humanity on a whole? This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. We are back for another week full of both nonsense and we hope substance here on Blue Collar Bitcoin. Eric Kaysen, author of the book Crypto Sovereignty, joins Josh and myself, Dan, to discuss the true power and importance of cryptography and how Bitcoin is one of the few things that truly and properly harnesses this innovation to propel human beings forward towards increased freedom and sovereignty. Eric dishes out a variety of zingers and hot takes in this one on topics including how Bitcoin is fascist, communist, and anarchist all in one. Eric's moved through his life from being a socialist to an anarchist. Why, quote-unquote, crypto generally doesn't harness the real power and purpose of cryptography. Why farmers are badasses, the dangers of intellectual laziness, the perils of credentialism, Bitcoin to Mars, getting high as fuck and talking physics, and this list could seriously go on and on. Chat was epic. Eric's passion and conviction are apparent when he speaks. Some of you will disagree with his rhetoric and worldview. Others will be shouting amen over and over while listening. Regardless, we think you'll all agree this dude thinks deeply. As the three of us discuss in this episode, Bitcoin harnesses the tremendous liberating power of asymmetric cryptography. But you aren't personally harnessing this defensive capability if you aren't storing your own private keys. The device Josh and myself, Dan, have chosen to rely on for years to protect our Bitcoin secrets and sign for transactions is the cold card made by the legends at CoinKite. This inconspicuous yet sexy little calculator is the best on the planet when it comes to hardware wallets. You can use code BCB for an alluring discount on cold card. Check out our CoinKite affiliate link down in the notes for discounts on a variety of CoinKite products, including the block clocks, tap signer, seed plates, honey badger hats, and more. I'll end with some quick code reminders if you find them helpful for yourself or for Christmas shopping and you want to support our show. You can use code BCB for a 10% discount to the Bitcoin 2024 conference in Nashville next July. You can use that same code BCB for a discount on a heat bit. Keep that air in your house this winter warm and pure while mining Bitcoin with a heat bit mini. That's at heatbit.com. And lastly, for a six-month discount on CrowdHealth, you can use code BLUE. That's B-L-U-E. If you have healthcare needs and you want to cut costs, go to joincrowdhealth.com BCB. Okay, ladies and gents, sit back, relax, and enjoy this cerebral roller coaster with Eric. Eric Casson is uh, here, Josh, <laughs> for a blue-collar Bitcoin rip. We just gave him our initial sort of acclimation to BCB, which is essentially we encourage every guest before we click record to be as loose, vulgar, vulgar abrasive as humanly possible. I hope Eric takes that to heart. I think he will. I think he's going to so. fit this podcast like a fucking glove. I do think so. What was the panel you were on right before our panel at Pacific Bitcoin? You had a panel where they were just asking random questions. And I think one of the questions was something to the effect of like, tell us about some degenerate shit you did as a teenager. 
I'm trying to, I was sitting here before we started recording, trying to remember what it was you were talking about. And I thought it was hilarious at the time, but I can't remember what it was. Maybe you could remind us what, give us a degenerate teenage story from Eric Kisson. The, the, I don't think this is the one I said, cause like I did too many panels over the last month, so I can't quite remember, but, but a real degenerate one is, uh, when we were kids, we would bust open videotapes and like take like the shiny tape. And then we would string it across the bridge in town at night and like wait for cars to come and like slam on their brakes. And we're like, oh, that's so funny. And then they like chase us out the mirror being like, you piece of <laughs> shit, we'll find you and kill you. Uh, and that was like real fun until one day we like heard a motorcycle coming and we're like, oh shit. Uh, like now oh. we might act. Yeah. So we like ran out and immediately like tore down all the tape and we're like, wow, that was like a terrible fucking idea. We really probably shouldn't have been doing that. Oh, I remember what it was. It was that... Uh, yeah, the statutes of limitations are past us. So me and a good friend, we like robbed the snack shack at high school and like stole all the candy <laughs> and had candy for like three years after that. That's that's what it was. Yeah. 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 So that was a good time. I hope the statutes Classic. of limitations are up. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> if you hadn't pulled that, you would have killed a guy. No doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe. That was one of those ones where it was like, oh, I can actually like do dumb enough shit to like destroy somebody else's life. And I have a lot of empathy for that about like, uh, I, I've just had personal shit where I realized like you just make like one mistake and like that can define the rest of your fucking like you just like not have an arm anymore and you'll be like yeah like I, I decided to like yeah. reach into this piece of farm work machinery and off went my arm. Yes. Yeah. That's a realization that we live on a day to day basis. Like we see people get their hands caught in some machinery in yeah. like a commercial area where we work. Oh, like yeah. I've seen that multiple times of just people getting their hand in places that shouldn't be. Or just somebody making a really bad decision that can fuck them for the rest of their life. And as a teenager, like I did a bunch of dumb stuff as well, like really dumb stuff that could have fucked my life up for perpetuity. But luckily it didn't. And I'm here. But it's uh, it's just one of those you know points of maturity. As you get older, you start to realize, holy shit, our teenagers fucking stupid. Oh, they sure are. I did some dumb shit, some shit that's... Uh so dumb, I'm not going to say it on here. Smarter than us. But yeah, some some vehicle-threatening behavior, for sure. Like, some some stuff looking back where I'm like, that could have led to a very, very serious car accident. Uh, back to the appendages comment, though, Josh. It's funny, we get to... It's not funny, but we make a lot of things funny, so we'll, we'll do it here. It is interesting. Let me use the word interesting to watch people particularly lose fingers. Josh, you've seen a, a, a good yes, number of I've people of lose those, fingers. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people lose fingers, blown off fireworks, kitchen mistakes. Saws. And the the contrast of how people compute this incident is so varied. Some people, you would think they got tapped on the shoulder. They're just taking it, it, it with a level of peace and tranquility that you're just like you just lost a finger and then other people you would think that watch their entire immediate family get burned alive at the stake the contrast yeah. is is so significant farmers though my dad grew up on a farm my cousins are still farmers soybean and corn they have cattle when those guys get injured they don't give a fuck true badasses you, you encounter a farmer that's lost a finger it's just part of the gig dude I mean, like, that's kind of definitive about being a farmer sort of across the board. It's like this high-risk enterprise where, like, you're providing for people in, like, a meaningful way. You're going to get paid absolute fucking shit. But at the end of the day, like, you feel pretty good about you have your own conduct, you're outside, you're raising your animals, raising your food, doing good. And humans have just been kind of doing it forever. And so, uh, yeah, it doesn't. It makes sense to me that they're, they're kind of harder people that are going to roll with the punches a lot easier than, you know. Uh, most of us urban folk who have lost any inkling of how to live independently from, uh, you know, 
big daddy government and otherwise. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here with a farming story really quick while we're on the subject. This is, this was not expected by the way. I did not expect to be talking about farming in the beginning of this episode, but this is the farm podcast, right? Yeah. yeah. This, this, this is a true story and this is fucking crazy. My uncle is a farmer. He was, he had some old, you know, those open tractors from like 50 years ago where there's no cab, just an open, open cab, right? The seat breaks while he is, I don't know what he's doing. I know nothing about farming, but he had a giant rake behind the, behind the vehicle. He gets launched off the tractor, gets raked by, he falls under the wheel. It runs over his pelvis. He gets raked by the apparatus behind the tractor because it's still in a low gear and is moving. Oh no, I messed that up. I'm sorry. Hold on one second. He falls off, gets run over, gets up, tries to get back on the thing and it runs him over again and then rakes him and he survives this whole ordeal. It. <laughs> these guys are tenacious Dude, man tenacious I, i'm sorry i got another farm story because in the, in the spirit of of kin getting dominated on a farm this is a real story it's not funny but it's probably my, gonna be funny my, my 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 grandfather who i never really knew he got full-blown life-threatening rushed by a bull like had an, a really serious cardiac injury straight to the chest, rushed by a bull, continued to farm for 10 years, and then passed away of cardiac causes, which they think came from getting bull rushed. Sounds sad. Yes. I'm going to say this. He did live a long, full, prosperous life. And if indeed he did pass away because of getting rushed by a bull, that is bad ass shit. I'm proud to have the same last name. Josh, I, I, didn't, I didn't expect farming either, but there's some good farm trauma in both of our families <laughs> yes there is eric tell us about yourself dude uh so let's see i got involved in bitcoin uh early right kind of like mid 2012 or so yeah. started to percolate uh by 2013 i was like actively buying with like the poor ass small amount of money i had uh and this was all on the back end of like a super depressive episode after watching sort of all of occupy sort of start to come up and as it started to dwindle out, like I went into like a, a real depression because the first time I heard about Bitcoin was through Occupy. Um, but like this Bitcoin thing was interesting. I kind of clung to it. Uh, and eventually, like just some fire lit under me kind of in early 2013 where I was like, this, this is like the thing that we can use to actually, because like everyone was talking about the money's a problem at Wall Street. And I was like, this Bitcoin thing. And everyone's like, no, you're like smoking crack. Don't do that. Um, so when Coinbase got started there in San Francisco, I did a couple of interviews with them. I didn't get those particular roles, which funny enough, like I did get the role later on by working into it. Um, and so Olaf called me. It actually, yeah, I actually think it's, it's like 10 years to the day that he like called me and he was like, yo, we like need bodies to like start doing like support work. Do you want in? And I was like, oh yeah, like let's like do another interview. And he was like, oh no, like you're, you're like hired. Like. I'll like send you this, the programs we use and we'll like send you a computer as soon as we can. And yeah, and that, that was kind of my, uh, and a lot of ways I see that that was like my, my bachelor's degree in Bitcoin where I kind of figured out how everything worked and really got pretty deeply involved kind of on the technical side. Uh, left in 2017 after the block wars because I was so disgusted with kind of how everything played out. Uh, in addition to the way they were just kind of like dumped however the Bcash fallout was going to happen on to support right. for us to just kind of figure out uh, i was like fuck this this is idiotic uh so i moved on i had been doing a lot of my work already i'd probably already wrote like half the book uh but there were just kind of a series of essays and sort of my own thoughts 
Uh, and one of my best friends who he, he's now one of the lead architects for uh, the Bitkey project at Block. We, and, and I met him at Coinbase. Uh, we just had a long conversation where he was like, you need to like be public with what you're talking about. And it's like really important that we like advocate for this, like as clear netted real people. So I started to present my work more, uh, got hired at Unchained, was with them for a while, helped uh, scale their company from, it was like eight or 10 up to like 30 folk. And then I moved on. Um, and that, I think that was kind of like my master's degree because that's where I got really familiar with the uh, uh, partially signed Bitcoin transactions and, and sort of how and why we needed to do better address management, what it would mean to consolidate and all this kind of shit. Um, yeah, and now I'm like the official crazy person of Bitcoin. Maybe not the official, but I'm definitely like top tier insane person. And that, my book really gets behind <laughs> that, as you guys know. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, this oh. would be if you gave this to a noob, they would run for the fucking hills. That's why we love it so much, though. They, yeah. it, it is very, very different. I, I always insist that like I'm the worst person to orange pill anyone because uh, just like as as I try to do that, usually people are like, oh, so like this is legitimately for insane people. Okay. Like I don't want anything to do with it. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like this is the return of Messiah. <laughs> They're like, no, you're just crazy. So um, crypto anarchy, it's a term that you use in the book. If you had to describe to somebody, I mean, obviously we're not talking about full blown, you know, hard edged Bitcoiner here. Somebody who's kind of in the middle of the road ranks as far as their understanding of political ideology how would you explain crypto anarchism to that person because when most people hear anarchy they immediately and i know i've heard you say this before that there's the propaganda has been so good about the term anarchist that people just immediately assume that you're a person that wants to burn the world to the ground and, and just have total chaos reign how would you explain anarchy basically to somebody who thinks that it's just pure chaos yeah. So first, it's funny because this actually goes headlong into kind of my second book, which is where I have to like deconstruct and do sort of the historical and philosoph and philological analysis of like all of the isms from communism to socialism to fascism and anarchism. So first, what I'd say to everybody is like, look, if you go out into nature, there's like no gigantic governor that we see. Like nobody's obeying laws. Like it's all just nature. But like there's order and reason to it. Like it functions in the way that it does. Like that's what anarchy is. It's just natural order of things as they actually happen to be. Uh, and it turns out that like we could have a society where we could have rules and not rulers. And that would actually work like really well. Uh, and one of the main problems with anarchism is like there's not a methodology to economically organize. And so historically, like they would use different forms of labor union or what was known as syndicalism. Uh, but like that was very problematic because you had to engage in just mutual exchange and like either making uh, your own kind of like labor scripts or something like that. So it just didn't work. Um, and now that we have like the internet and that we have specifically cryptography, there's this really weird way of like marrying up this extreme, highly technical military technology uh, that's extremely rigid in its rule set with anarchism vis-a-vis -vis the internet that actually like fits perfectly well together and this is the other part of the the book is essentially explaining how you get these dualisms where you have like a thesis and an antithesis and they like synthesize back into one another in this really powerful way to create something totally new and so like i've pointed out before that, like i see that in bitcoin specifically uh, with like the fascist ideology of that, like what Satoshi chose and set as like the 21 million rule set 
how all sort of the core rules he set down and there's no way to modify it. Like that's a very fascist idea. But then you have the total equality of the network with like my wealth is equal to your wealth. And like, we don't have any way to like steal it from one another. Even if like we try, try to take over the, the network, like all of the incentives will always misaligned against us in such a way. So to me, it's a really perfect marriage. And so I'd say crypto anarchy is the actualization of anarchy vis-a-vis the internet through the economic engine that like is Bitcoin. Mm. I like to think about it as like, it's, it's like letting laissez-faire run to its extreme, right? Letting market forces and the actors in the market completely decide between themselves what makes sense and what is the logical thing to do interacting with each other in the marketplace, right? Not having some overbearing parent telling them how to operate and telling them what to do. I, I wanted to know if you've ever, have you ever heard of the essay written by Scott Alexander called Meditations on Moloch? Is that something you're familiar with? Yes, uh, I haven't. I haven't read it. I am familiar with it. Uh, and and as a Moloch, like referring to uh, like the ancient deity that you would sacrifice babies to and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. I'm familiar with this essay. Right. Yeah. I think it, Moloch is referring to like a Canaanite god, but the the impetus of it is, and I'm always looking to try to. Because I, I agree with you for the most part. Like I'm libertarian leaning and anarchism is not far from my wheelhouse. I, I totally agree. But in an effort to basically just you know scratch every itch, I read this uh, article and it, it's got a lot of good points. And I think the primary impetus behind it is when you really let free markets run completely unfettered, you run into a, uh, the problem that he kind of highlights throughout it, which is... Uh, a good here's a good uh, example. So let's say you have a paint manufacturer. You've got no, you've got nobody regulating this entire industry. And if he realizes that he can make more money than his competitors by, say, illegally dumping waste products into drinking water, and as he starts killing his competitor, his competitor says, "Oh shit! The only way I can compete is by also dumping waste products into some drinking water or into the river or whatever." The problem is, is that there's like a competition to the bottom potentially. And that's where it makes a lot of sense in a lot of people's world to say, well, there should be a regulator. There should be somebody like the EPA who can step in and say, no, you shouldn't be dumping waste products into a river. But the problem is, is, and I know where I think my, where I think this would go immediately is like, well, that EPA can get co-opted by the industry and then it doesn't really matter. So it all comes down to human nature in and of itself. We're all fallible, we're all weak, and we're all very capable of being um, influenced by money. And by so, I, I guess what I'm asking here is, if you're familiar with this ideation, how do you think that anarchism can solve that problem—the problem of competition to the bottom, where? they can actually have a situation where people can do the, exactly the wrong thing while trying to compete against each other. Well, a couple of things that come up. One is, uh, I think it's a Joseph Conrad quote about the, the line between good and evil is the line that divides every man's heart. So like we're all capable of being the evil paint manufacturer that's dumping, you know, because again, incentives align in the exact same way that the incentives align for there to be a revolving door between the EPA and all these toxic polluters. To me, the way that anarchism solves it is it takes, you know, what we're talking about is called the tragedy of the commons, is that we're, we can take this idea and we can actually allow for the free market to address it and go, hey, like we all need good drinking water. 
we can have a free agency that competes with other free agencies. So maybe instead of the EPA, we have like the, we could have like the water PA, some shit like that, but total free market agency and whichever free market actually does a better job at addressing the regulatory functions there, I think could do better. And, uh, on the more extreme ends, I'd say more of a, it's called a minarchist, which is the idea of that, like, essentially you try to reduce the state all the way down to like a watchman state, um, which like, I would get in bed with that or, or general libertarianism. To me, the big advantage that anarchism specifically has in our world is that like, I think we just live in essentially a totalitarian corporatist state that there is no freedoms to, and that the, the job of struggling against it, I feel like anarchism is one of the few ideologies that actually tells you to engage in direct struggle against the machine. And to me, like one of the most important things is like, we have to tear down the current apparatus and like, I don't know what comes after. Like, I, I think if I had to make a projection on it, that like we get some kind of crazy, like internet commonwealth thing that like has like a ton of different overlapping structures, like hundreds of overlapping structures to all sorts of different methods and modes and things. But essentially everything sort of, it would kind of re- invert the current s- systems and structures. So like your local governments would be the most powerful political entities followed by counties, followed by states. And then like, finally, uh, like your country, your nation state itself would be like the weakest political entity with like the fewest amount of powers. Sounds like how we started. Yeah. I think the free market can address the, the regulatory problems of like, Hey, we have this tragedy of the commons. And I find like that becomes a much greater tragedy when you give the power to the government, because now there becomes a specific methodology where you get systematic level corruption, where people can engage you know, and like to me, the, the story of Chernobyl is like one of the best stories that there is about that. Of like they knew and understood about what would happen when you would push one of these Gen 1 nuclear power plants to the place that it was, and that the end rods that were on the actual things that would like lower in, they knew that if you shove those in too fast, that you could cause for a nuclear meltdown. But because of the regulatory structure of the Soviet state, that information was swept under the rug because they didn't like how that made the government look. And so to me, like this, this is the same mechanism that operates in this, essentially Mm -hmm. in the state of emergency as well, is that like, once you integrate these things into the structure of the government, the magnitude of the severity of the problem can get much larger and much more extreme. And I think we've seen that in the United States with like, you know, we've witnessed a number of these, uh, like, I'm pretty sure there was one relatively close to you guys. There was a train derailment that polluted a huge waterway in Ohio, maybe six or 10 months ago, something like that. Yep. Who was held accountable? How are they held accountable? And what happened? Well, we all know nobody was held accountable. Uh, the EPA probably issued some fine to somebody somewhere and that that money now gets reabsorbed into the EPA to pay a bunch of paper pushers who aren't actually doing so. Whereas I think like if we have free market competition in these same agencies, like essentially people need to be proving like, hey, this is what we're doing with the funding. This is why we're better than the EPA. This is how we can address this issue and a much more thoughtful way that has that we're forced to be open with it. Because like, let's say that there is like a some kind of a syndication to where like, if you're part of a paint manufacturer, you need to be part of one of these regulatory syndicates. Well, if you have the freedom of choice, like maybe these guys uh, might have like slightly higher membership fees but like they have a much more robust and powerful reputation that people like trust much more 
But again, also, like, I'm not going to go make anybody do anything or join any agencies. And for me, like, ethically, anarchism works the best because, like, I don't want to force anyone to do anything under sort of any conditions. So. What comes to mind, well, I guess my first thought is the thing I appreciate about the way you, you think and talk is it's very clear you're aware that no ideology or system is perfect. So I think when people, when people pick on anarchism, this is true of picking on a ton of different worldviews and ideas. They pick the lowest hanging fruit, case closed. It doesn't solve this problem, so the whole trajectory is hogwash. That's not a good way to think. That's not a good way to steal man. That's not a good way to glean insights from other people's viewpoints. I would not at all label myself as an anarchist. I would not at all label myself as a libertarian, but I think a lot can be gleaned from it. And one thing that comes to mind, particularly came to mind for me reading your book, and I think this will be a good tie back to Bitcoin, is, is looping in Bitcoin and crypto to this whole anarchism idea. Because one way you led is you say, we look at nature and we see that it's ordered. Well, nature is an unbelievably ruthless place, like unbelievably ruthless. And obviously the, the term ethics is a loaded term that we could spend <laughs> three hours unpacking. But what happens in nature, the way it rubs the average 21st century homo sapien, it does not align with their idea or manifestation of ethical behavior between mammals. Humans want to behave differently than alligators treat each other or lions treat each other. So when you, when you transpose that onto the idea of anarchy, and I think where th this anarchism gets a lot of momentum and power and more validity in my mind is when you start recognizing tools that have been created that do allow for some degree of fair and ethical cooperation without any centralized organization. And that's where the, the term crypto comes into your book, cryptography, and, and Bitcoin for you being truly the linchpin, it seems, reading you and hearing you for this potential move forward to disintermediate a lot of unethical power structures that currently exist. To move this into a question, tie this term crypto into anarchy. Uh, what do you mean by crypto? What do you not mean by crypto? And what is the powerful innovation, discovery, and unlock of asymmetric cryptography? Yeah, I think first of all, uh, like I'm pretty flippant with my utilization of, of crypto. And so like I, I require people to be pretty attentive to exactly where and how I'm using it. Uh, because like I think it is a trapping term and I sort of like yeah. that. Because like if I go to like a crypto meetup and talk to people about crypto, like they're they're generally going to be sort of a doofus that hasn't like thought very deeply about like what crypto actually means. Um, and to me, like that's sort of the irony is that like they they have disemboweled the term so that like it just is this catch-all term for like whatever blockchain shitcoin they've made. Um, and to me, like I've chose to die on this hill, which is why my book is wrote crypto sovereignty, because I believe that the true power that Bitcoin has is that it teaches us what the power of asymmetric cryptography does when it's integrated into an economic system because now any individual with any other individual can actually set up an ability to have a secure channel of communication and in that secure channel of communication they can make an economic exchange which as we can tell by history like that is the most important exchange that individuals can engage in and that is the singular goal of the state to be able to overtake which is why they have anointed themselves with the power and privilege to be able to issue currency and nobody else can is because it's specifically an economic imperative that they want to have control over. So using asymmetric cryptography in such a way as Bitcoin, this allows for us the economic sovereignty 
that all states everywhere today have declared themselves to have the unilateral responsibility over to. And that has also been what has not only created the war machine, but fundamentally augmented the entirety of our society towards generalized statism and using the state specifically for methods, modes, and means of economic production, which in a lot of ways is like this really kind of strange inverted form of like totalitarian communism. But it's done with all, it's done in all these very almost opposite of how you would uh, initially expect it to function. On that vein, when you were talking to Peter last time you were on What Bitcoin Did, you talked about how your journey sent you from being a socialist to an anarchist. Walk us through that progression and, and how those two things relate, where you think the socialists go wrong but are trying to row in a similar direction. Unpack that for us. Well, so first, what's pretty important is that like the term anarchism was developed specifically after I think it was Garfield was killed at a World Fair by like an anarchist who just like rolled up to him and like pulled out a gun and was like, bat, bat. Uh, and that's also like the origin of the Secret Service as well. Is they were like, maybe we like if the president's wandering around, maybe like somebody should protect him. But anyways, after this, they used the term anarchism for because it means no rules. And they're like, these people want no rules anywhere. The prior term that was utilized for was libertarian socialism. And like, this is a very important point in my mind, because anarchism has very deep roots that are married in socialist ideas. And again, this is why my next book is like unpacking all of these isms is because like Marxism, for example, it always viewed itself as being scientific socialism. We're like so far removed from that because of how much that's been manipulated that like when you say Marxism now, people think that you mean cultural Marxism, which has these strange remnants of pieces of Marxism, but like it's so discombobulated that like I think it's almost a useless term at this point in time. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's really important to understand that origin of what anarchism is. And so like as somebody who priorly identified as a socialist, I really... In my naivety, I just thought like if we just had to try hard enough, we just had to like elect the right people, we just had to make for the social thing powerful enough that we could do it. And I just didn't realize that uh, as much as you hope and desire for those things, if the incentives don't align, because that's what you're asking for. You're asking for someone's incentives on their willpower to overcome right. economic imperatives or others and to just like will it to power. And like, that's just not actually how that thing functions. It turns out that like out in that general world, like economics is actually like a highly imperative thing. That's like really important to everyone. Cause like we want to feel safe and secure and economics is how we achieve that. And so for me, when I finally encountered Bitcoin and I realized like, oh, if we like fix the money, we can kind of return to this gold standard. Gold had all this flaws and I can just like beat the shit out of you and steal it. And like, that's really what nation state wars had been about up until World War One. And I was like, oh, OK, so like if we realign the incentives towards this deflationary currency that can't be leached off of and taxed to the wazoo, there's this totally different economy that none of us have ever encountered before. That looks very similar to our great great grandparents, where, you know, the cost of things was relatively low. There was an ability to save in a medium that would actually gain purchasing power over time. And that, like, this is the natural order of things. Uh, and it turns out that, like, Keynes, again, using the state in a crisis mode, was like, no, we have to, like, hijack the state. And, the, and again, with, like, the socialist idea, it was like, the state can spend money on good stuff. And so long as the state spends all the money on good stuff, that, like, we're going to gain more economic productivity and that like, that's good for everybody. And like, little did he, and maybe he did understand this, but like the imperialist notion in and of itself can like function through that very same thing. And like, what's good for us by taking advantage of poor brown people around the world turns out like, isn't good for those poor brown people. 
But perhaps Keynes didn't actually see them as human, so maybe that's why he had that perspective. And it's back to the tragedy of the commons we, we outlined earlier, which is, you know, with socialism, with, with well, I guess this is more communism, but it's, it's related somewhat. When the state owns everything, nobody gives a fuck about it. Like, nobody cares when, you know, this farm I'm farming right now isn't owned by me. I get no benefit from if I do a good job or if I do a half-assed job or if I don't do it at all, I still eat potentially. So I've got no incentive to do the best job I can to have any pride in what I'm doing if I don't have an economic impetus to do that. I mean, I would argue that's the linchpin as to why capitalism is so successful, contrasting to why communism is so unsuccessful. Because given a long enough time frame, people just aren't economically incentivized to do a good job when they have no benefit from that. Yeah. And again, with the nuance, like we, you know, uh, and this is where like socialists go off. They go like, no, like capitalism's the problem because like greedy corporations just get to like steal. And then it's like, look, like fucking nuance, you guys. Like part, part of the problem is, is that like market mechanisms work and they work really fucking well. The problem is, is that like when we use this term capitalism, a lot of times we're actually referring to a fiat based economy that is based on general imperialism. So like when we talk about capitalism today, like I think the remnants of it are almost non-existent outside of actually black market. I like, I think like black markets are like the most functional and some of the, the best operable markets that you can find. And that's one reason why in places like sub-Saharan Africa, where the government's totally fucked up, you find places where black markets are very robust and functional because that's how they had to actually make it work. And again, with kind of looping back to that second book, like this is why I really want to parse out all these different isms. Cause like, it's really important to understand how the market mechanism of capitalism function, but like that has to be separated out from fiat money, its creation, and the ability to essentially have a metastasized debt-based economy that the state controls on top of that money. Um, and same thing with like, because uh, like in a lot of ways, and again, to like ruffle some feathers, to me, like Bitcoin actually represents non-state communism in some of the most powerful ways. Mm. But again, like there's all these Essentially, it's like taking different parts of all of the ideologies of the 20th century and recombine them in this way to take like, it takes like the total equality of all units and the inability and like the equality and the recognition of the equality of all participants in the Bitcoin network to be truly equal. But it also makes the most radicalized form of individualism by like not being able to actually tie a physical identity to like any particular address or set of UTXO sets. And so, like, by combining these very extreme different aspects, to me, part of the goal of ex- combining this extreme mode of fascism and the extreme mode of communism is to give you the most extreme form of individualism. Because, like, now I can just do whatever the fuck I want with my money, including destroying it and not paying you. And now it actually becomes a complete prerogative on what I choose to do with my money, as opposed to how much force is being put on to me about it. One thing I loved about the book, Eric, was... <laughs> You essentially saying that the term crypto in many regards encrypts the real impact of cryptography. Talk to us about what you mean by that and then compare and contrast for someone that I don't know if they've made it this far in the episode and they're still confused. But the fact that you're, you're the furthest thing I've ever seen from a crypto bro, yet you love to, to sort of use that, uh, delineate what you mean by the difference. Yeah, so uh, I really love it because like I think it, really animates for individuals like how 
deep they actually understand like what this term crypto means and like where and why it has value. Um, and essentially like part of the recursive nature of understanding like why cryptography itself is important is to like understand why secrets in and of themselves are important. Like why do we need privacy? Like why do we need to have secrets? And furthermore, like what happens as we unveil a secret? Like what's the, the form of knowledge that's actually imparted to us? Well, like when we unveil the secret for like our private key in Bitcoin, we like literally are able to now control our wealth. But like what happens out in the greater world where we like discover something about nature where we like unveil the secret to ourselves? So to me, it's almost like there's this uh, metaphysical notion about like the power that secrecy has. And that like to me, like that's actually how the universe functions as it presents itself in one particular way. But through the unveiling mechanism of discovering what the truth and the true nature of something is, we expose its general potentialities in such a way to where like we discover more about the universe and we become empowered by this understanding of that, like things aren't necessarily as they present themselves on their face. And I think particularly in our highly nihilistic world where things aren't totally aligned in that way, that function becomes even more powerful. And so there, there's a bunch of different layers to it, but my main meaning is just understanding why and how having a cryptographic secret, particularly around economic wealth is so important and why one would need to be able to hide or conceal their wealth from not just necessarily the state, but really from anyone, you know? Um, and like something that I've been more pedantic about recently is that like, I think, well, frankly, like I think everybody needs to own Bitcoin for their protection in some way. Like you don't know if one of your family members is going to get hit in the head and lose their mind and turn against you. You don't know if somebody's going to make an accusation against you and your big about your business. That's going to get it shut down. Like this really comes to like the individual power that you get by being able to hold a secret that is truly a secret and it belongs to you and only you. And you're the only person that has the power to unveil that secret. But that kind of connect on the question, I feel like I drift a bit. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess to to follow up, why aren't most cryptocurrencies or maybe all cryptocurrencies outside of Bitcoin, why aren't they actually harnessing the power and purpose of cryptography? Well, I'd say like there, there's a number of projects out there that are using robust and interesting cryptography. But one of the first ones is, is like after Satoshi launched Bitcoin and got it out in the world, this idea was now out there. It was like on the general radar surveillance institutions were monitoring this. So like I have very deep suspicion, even the most robust privacy projects that have anonymous founders and did a fair launch and have proof of work. I have a deep suspicion about them just because cryptocurrencies were on the radar for government surveillance agencies and that like they had a high reason to not only be suspicious and wary of it, but to like go throw flack and op and do psychological operations in the field. So like that's one of the primary ones. But I think more than anything, like it's just general nihilism, you know, like Satoshi Nakamoto today is the richest man on the planet if he was to claim his fortune and he doesn't do it. You know, I don't think anybody else has that willpower. And that's the very reason why the structure of every single fucking cryptocurrency is designed to like make the people who get in there first the richest is because like, yeah, and, and I'm always amazed at how much when I go to because sometimes I, I, I still go to like crypto conferences just to like have kind of insane and weird conversations. <laughs> and it's really wild to me, like at most of these people have thought maybe three steps deep. Of where you go, okay, so like Ripple's like the real thing, like, huh, like Brad Garling like owns most of that Ripple, like, what do you think like if the government like put the clamps on him, like what would happen? And they're like, oh, like I never, I don't know, I didn't think of that. And I'm like, oh shit, like maybe you should, <laughs> just an idea. 
it is really apparent when you dig into this stuff that the only, I mean, you could call Bitcoin sovereign, you know, that is the only one that, that cannot be manipulated from the outside. And there's a quote in your book and I, I forgot to put who it's attributed to, but it's the sovereign is he who decides the exception, right? Mm. Well, nobody can decide the exception in Bitcoin. And I would argue that is what makes Bitcoin vastly different from the rest of this whole crypto atmosphere that we, you know, 26,000 or whatever coins that exist. There is somebody in each one of those 25,999 other projects who can decide an exception Mm. on that. Emergency powers. You've talked. To, you, you talked a lot about states throughout your book, and I think that's really important to help people understand, like the power structures and how these things work, and how human nature is so easily manipulated, and why that is the weakness that has caused the downfall of every state throughout history, and why it is that anarchy can be argued as potentially the best or one of the best methods for putting together a people in a coalition to work together in a single direction. But you talk a lot about how emergency powers have been the lever of governments to reach outside their codified power. How does Bitcoin remove that ability from states? Essentially, by putting all of the power into individual hands and collectivizing it in such a way so that uh, no longer are we relying on this singular power structure that previously already has all power invested into it, but that through the collective nature that we're actually operating together, there's a new method and mode to actually make sure that nobody can overcome essentially, i.e. the law of Bitcoin, unless there is a total consensus around that. You know, and so we've seen in different, both hard forks and soft forks, the ability to do upgrading, to change the rule set in these minor ways, but that could work on a more massive level. But the thing is, is it needs to have the actual consent of the people that are involved with the network in order to do that. Mm. Uh, and both of those quotes that, that you point towards both, uh, the the sovereign exception and the state of emergency these are both concepts of carl schmidt who he was actually uh he was a nazi and he was he was a a highly regarded legal theorist during the nazi regime um yeah yeah, like i deal a lot with nazis and one of the reasons why nazism and fascism is a powerful and important ideology that is so highly discounted by the liberal academic institutions they refuse to study it despite the fact that it was arguably the most powerful ideology of the 20th century. And there's very important things to learn from it, including the extraordinary danger. Uh, You know, like Schmidt is an interesting figure because like he actually wrote the concept of the political was an idea that popularized this idea of the state of emergency. And he wrote it for President von Hindenburg to try to ban both the Nazi party and the Communist Party in order to save the Weimar Republic. Turns out von Hindenburg didn't read it, but Hitler read it. And so when Hitler came power, he was like, oh, he was like this emergency. Oh, I like this idea. This emergency theory thing like this. Yeah, this is good. We can use this to defeat the communists. And like, lo and behold, he did that. Same thing with like Schmidt, because he was a bit of an opportunist when he saw the Nazis were coming to power. He was like, oh, I should like join these guys. And so like he actually wrote the amicus brief that explained why the Knight of Long Knives was an actual like jurisprudence decision that like Hitler made on his own that was like actually legal. Uh, he was detained for like three years after World War II to see if he would be tried at Nuremberg, and he, and he wasn't. And then he just ended up living in his parents and like working on different academic stuff for the rest of his life privately. Um, so like, I think he's a very valuable figure because like he critiques liberalism in the most powerful and important ways. And that's one of the reasons why he's been like so thoroughly buried. And also, it's important to point out, I only 
started reading Carl Schmidt after I had read Giorgio Ambigen and his whole series called Homo Sucur, which is dealing with this idea of that there have been people that have always been both excluded and included in government structures throughout history. And what I mean by that is, is like somebody who can be killed, but they can't be sacrificed in like religious rituals. And so the idea is that like they're outside of society in so far that like you have a right and a privilege to like murder them if you want to, but like they have no protections by the law. And the original idea of this is that essentially like in order for the gods to dignify the law itself, that like anybody who broke their oath towards the law like needed to be murdered in order to like dignify the gods and like showing that like that oath actually like meant something meaningful. Um, and I, again, that was like a strange diatribe that I went on about Schmidt. And you originally asked about uh, like emergency theory and, and how did you want me to connect that back? Wait, I want to continue the tangent real quick before we do that, because I, I do really like this theme that you've hammered home of you can't put bumpers on what people are and aren't allowed to explore. If you do not let sheep wander, they become soft and supple and they get devoured by wolves. This is just intellectual integrity 101. I, I, I pick on this show every once in a while about what I characterize as, a, as a, a loving, wonderful, but fairly fundamentalist Christian upbringing, where there are limits on what you are and aren't allowed to explore. There are ins and there are outs. And people are allowed to kind of stray near the fence, but then once they're really clinging to actual logic outside of the ideology or gleaning anything, back to the point I made earlier, gleaning anything from other viewpoints and worldviews, it sort of gets rejected. I think the same thing can be picked on in Bitcoin. Sure. We are quote unquote maxis, whatever that means. We only own Bitcoin. However, when you tell somebody that just onboarded and has not done no research that they should never, ever consider reading anything about, say, Ethereum, that's not healthy for them. That's not setting them up for a genuine, intellectual, thoughtful journey to figure out what's actually best. And so you talking about reading Nazis, if you, if you tell people <laughs> you can never, ever read Nazis, it's more likely that something like Nazism will once again emerge in the world because people aren't able to build robust intellectual defenses against bad ideas. Well, it's not only that. It's like you could think about it as like sheltering your children for their entire lives yes. till they're 18, you know? And that's what you're, you know, insinuating with like the Christian ideology, Dan, there. And we both grew up with that. But when you shelter children to an extreme, I mean, with all good intentions, you're going to create a monster because when that thing gets out of your house, it is going to go bouncing off the walls and doing the most, I mean, potentially the craziest shit it can possibly do to explore the boundaries of what it's allowed to do in the real right. world. You know oh, what I yeah. mean? Like, I think we've both experienced that and it's, it's back to that. It's like, that's this, the fundamental human people want to explore. People want to find where the boundaries are. And if you keep them too tightly knit in there, it's like, it's like, what it's like, pressing a string or not a string a, a coil very tightly and when that thing comes loose it's going to explode well it also before you go it doesn't do justice to the actual worldview so i think there's a lot of validity and beauty in christianity but the completely sheltered version of christianity sounds completely ridiculous and stupid and doesn't hold intellectual weight truly robust christianity is one that's hardened by interacting with other people, appreciating other worldviews, 
exploring more than just one subset of conservative evangelicals, right? So, it, and my, my brother is a, is a pastor and he's a Christian and we love these conversations. And a lot of times he'll be discouraged by, very discouraged by fundamentalist brands of what he loves because it just makes the whole thing sound dumb. Same thing could be true of Bitcoin. Bitcoiners that have never explored anything else, never made any mistakes, never rubbed elbows with somebody where there's a little bit of friction are going to get soft, supple, and prone to get devoured like any other group or, or sort of cultish trajectory. Well, and like this is, uh, so, so again, with like the nuance, I, I think fundamentalist perspectives, and I, I had a friend point this out to me, that like it's pretty valuable for people that are relatively dumb uh, because like trying to get into the nuance and the complexities and have them parse stuff out is a highly difficult task for them that they're generally going to get lost. Yes. Um, with that being said, you know, like uh, a great thing is like, I, I'm not uh, like a lot of people are hating on ordinals. Like I don't hate on them. And, and like, and I understand the hatred for it because like everything that's pretty much been produced inside of it so far has been kitsch garbage bullshit. That's insulting to artists across the board. With that being said, like Project Spartacus, which has inscribed the Afghani war logs that Julian Assange was put in prison for, like that's an extremely powerful mode of getting to publish information. And to me, like that's true art. And if people want to fuck with the protocol in such a way to do stuff like this, I also think it's really important to like try to break Bitcoin. Like if your NFT art can actually break it, like that's really important to me. And I want to figure out how we can remediate that issue. Furthermore, if you can actually start dumping WikiLeaks logs for current crimes that are being, for crimes against humanity that are being performed in places like Israel or Ukraine or anywhere else around the world, I want that on Bitcoin. I think it's really important, robust, and powerful. But again, it's nuance, you know, like, is this actually bloating it in such a way that it's damaging financial transactions? Like, I, I don't know, but I think it's really important to explore all this in the exact same way that, like, maybe there are key failings in Bitcoin that we should be more open to uh, other potential cryptocurrencies that we try to hold up to the same standard, but maybe aren't there, but have other applications of cryptography that are valuable. I don't know. Uh, I think that trying to give all of this information to somebody who's a bit remedial, it, they're generally going to drown in all of it and they're going to become like a hex maximalist or some bullshit like that. There's a Fed governor that's a hex maximalist, by the way. Are you serious? Did you see that? Yeah. I, I don't know. It was on Twitter, so it's probably real. I don't know for 100%. <laughs> But I saw it on Twitter, so it's got to be real. Man. Uh, I do think, though, that it's actually got teeth. Like, this guy was a Fed governor who is now uh, a hexagon. Holy <laughs> wearing shit, Lou man. Wearing Louis Vuitton. Yeah. <laughs> a hexagon. Richard Hex, in my opinion, is, uh, like, he's clearly a very smart man. And, like, I'm not even... Sh and, like, in some ways, like, I think he's doing, like, a very extreme kind of performative art presentation, which is how I think he's going to try to, like, get away from the SEC and other heavy-handed agencies that will get him and will punish him. Um, but the same way, like, I think people like him are really dangerous for not intellectually inclined people because he can just run circles around because he is a very smart individual and he presents yeah. a lot of very difficult, nuanced arguments that are hard for people to understand if they're not well-read and not only a lot of bitcoin literature but also in economic ethical like all sorts of different history so uh you know like while i think that those guardrails are pretty valuable and great for most people uh like i'm personally much more concerned about like 
your smartest and your best and your bright, like brightest, like what happens to them when you put them in a box that they can't liberate themselves from? And that's one of the reasons why I hate fiat so desperately is because there are so many brilliant, thoughtful, creative, talented, extraordinary people that have all of their agency robbed from them because they can't figure out or understand how and why this fucked up system that rewards greed in unethical conduct in such a way that they like can't ever actually make it. It's truly heartbreaking to me. And those are the people that I want to be able to break outside of whatever boxes that have defined them to go explore everything that they can. And while part of that is individual empowerment and just having the agency and drive to do it, I do think a large part is the societal structures that take advantage of, of not only them, but everybody through these very deceitful and discrete mechanisms that are very difficult to understand if you're not well-read in a number of different, you know, economic literature, economic history, on jurisprudence history, on war, state history, all sorts of different things. So I have a lot of empathy for it, but at the same time, uh, I, I oscillate a lot on, uh, you know, having empathy for them and saying, fuck them. So I guess simple question for you here, but I'm going to elaborate a little bit on it. Do you think that the state at this point has really grasped how dangerous Bitcoin is to it? I know we hear Elizabeth Warren going on. I just saw recently she was talking about the positives of CBDCs and how they can help you know, make Bitcoin pointless. She clearly, if we give her... <laughs> If we give her generous credit to understanding what what she's actually doing, she's you know propagating the CBDC because she doesn't want to see the state lose its grasp on currency. Do you think that they actually understand it, or do you think that they're still generals fighting the last war as they've done through every major conflict in the last you know through eons, where they, they use battle tactics that just don't that just aren't relevant anymore because they truly don't understand the new technology that has come up. That will change the way that they need to strategize how they how they ensure conflict happens in a way that is beneficial to them. Do you think they they have a true grasp on this yet? No, they they have absolutely no clue. Um, like there there's so many moves behind. Like they they don't even understand that. Like not only has the chessboard been set up and like we have them in checkmate. Like they're they don't even understand that we're like playing chess yet. Um. And like this is to be expected of like a bunch of remedial government people who are going to be parasitic and leech off of other people and thinking that that's like a form of production. Uh, in a lot of ways, like I find it absolutely perfect that like these are our enemies because like this is almost just outside of their capacities of thought. And I'm not just trying to like put them down and say they're stupid, but like these are extremely rigid people that celebrate credentialism and think that that is. Like they think credentialism is the actual expertise of a topic and that like if somebody has a credential from like some field in Yale, they must be brilliant in that field as opposed to like perhaps there's yes. a whole series mm -hmm. of alignments that actually make them frankly like anti-theatical to that field and preventing its development in a number of robust ways because nobody can mm. step outside of the safety of saying something that could be seen as radical or different or challenging to the general narrative. And we've seen this in fields everywhere from not only just like the medical field and the field of physics, but like in archaeology and psychology. And I would really say all branches of academia, they explicitly exist not for the development of those forms of thought, but towards the protection 
of the production of what they do through academia. And I think those two things are very different and very dangerous. And I think the government does the same thing with its presentation of how it protects the world. And I also think that's why they have a very particular form of stupidity that has them not recognize how dangerous Bitcoin is to them. And furthermore, how reckless CBDCs are not only towards them, but also like setting up the board perfectly for Bitcoiners to checkmate their ass hard. Mm. What I'm concerned about in, say, the near future, when the realization does hit, and maybe this happens with a lot more ease, and maybe it happens in a more sly, roundabout way, as Hayek said, than uh, I realize, or most people think it might. I don't think it, I mean, hopefully it's not like a, a line in the sand where there really is an attack vector for people that own Bitcoin because the state comes out with its claws and its teeth and it wants to punish those potentially who have benefited massively foreseeing where this is going and getting themselves in a in a situation to be prepared for it although bitcoin is is very difficult to forfeit it's still very easy to put us monkeys in a cage what do you what, what is your thought process on in the worst scenario where it's almost like uh, the gold confiscation that happened in the, in the early 30s, where they, they basically tell you, you're giving us your Bitcoin, we're going to give you some you know, CBDCs in exchange for it, and if you don't do it, you're going to jail for 10 years. How do you think that uh, you can protect yourself in that scenario without just full-blown leaving the country, or is that the answer? No, I, I, I think civil war is the best answer. That, like these people are committing treason. They're stealing from us. They're doing it unconstitutionally and illegally. And we need to take the apparatus of all of the individual 50 states, collectivize them, put all of these different federal representatives on trial for treason. And like, I think we're already at that point, but we don't have anybody brave enough to actually stand up and say, these people are committing treason. They're doing illegal and unconstitutional things. They have rogue three-letter agencies that are surveilling all of us, and it is time to end this fucking bullshit. These people have names and addresses and soft, fleshy, physical bodies that are just as vulnerable as you and mine, and you know what's different about America from the rest of the world? We outgun our military 51. If these people want to fuck with us, let's play. I don't want to play this game and I don't want to hurt anybody, but God damn it, if you're going to come to my home and tell me what I have spent the last decade building with my closest friends and family and people that I love and that you get to steal it from me, get fucked. I will fight you tooth and nail and I will make sure that you kill me because this is my line in the sand that I am tired of allowing for you parasitic pieces of shit. To think that you own and control everything and that you can <laughs> shove my children into poverty by trying to control every single aspect of their financial lives. And, and like, and I do think that's actually what it's going to come down to because let's be honest, like our republic has been taken over by a bunch of geriatrics that shit their pants and have seizures on stage in front of everybody. And we are the laughing stock of the world today <laughs> because Americans won't stand up and say, How dare these treasonous slimy bastards get to take over our government and tell us that we're supposed to pay them half of our salaries for them to go blow up brown children abroad like it's disgusting and despicable and frankly i can't actually believe that we've gotten this far at this point in time so that's that's my insane diatribe for this time i certainly don't hope to see a civil war but i (laughs) 
I think I'll go to El Salvador if that shit happens. I don't want to deal with that shit. Um, call me a pussy all you want, but I'll just fucking punch out. What you said may be applicable for you, but it's it's not applicable when push comes to shove for even 95% of hardcore Bitcoiners. Like that's what they might say something like that, but it, they're not going to actually carry it out. And if things get that ugly, uh, it's going to be really challenging, especially for people that are that have much more going than just themselves. This isn't a new idea, but the, the, my existence is about way more than me and my, even what I think and believe and am passionate about. I have two little kids and a wife and a lot of other people I care about. And, I, and so I think that's why we would all deeply hope that there's some kind of solution here that's not nearly that, that violent and abrasive. And we can kind of wheel this Trojan horse in. And I think there is a lot of, a lot of momentum in that direction, but I do get fearful. I don't, I don't know what better word to use in that Josh and I constantly compare notes about just as, just as kind of you've articulated some, Eric, of do they really realize how this is going to play out if this thing continues to roll downhill the way it is? Because the incentives and the trajectory seem pretty black and white. If the snowball keeps going, it's going to, to create an avalanche and it is going to totally upend and change a lot of financial power structures, which is the bedrock of how all this shit is built up. Um, I want to just insert this here because it came to mind listening to Eric talk about civil war, which did get me pretty fired up. I'm not going to lie. It's a quote from Thomas Jefferson uh, coming off the top of my head here, but it's the tree of liberty has to be watered with the blood of tyrants and patriots alike from time to time. I don't think we've watered that tree since like 1776, Eric. I think it's about time we water it. I, I think he said specifically <laughs> it needs to be done about every 20 years. So we're about uh, 10 times overdue. 20 years? Dude, we're, we are way behind. Way behind. We need to water this thing. <laughs> I just want to say, like, I have two young children, too. Like, I understand that the putting oneself in a risk in that situation scenario, I think most people, I'd say it's probably close to 99.5%. Uh, like, I think it's a very, very high pluralcy. And I think that's why we're stuck in the situation we're in is that the mutual in interdependence that the state has created for us to have just for the general ways to survive means that if we challenge it in any meaningful way, like it can rise up and absolutely destroy our lives across the board in a number of ways. And I also think that like, when you look at that black and white scenario, the black scenario is uh, people's freedom becomes so self-limited and uh, self-censored that certain forms of thought are absolutely incapable now. Uh, up to like the example of talking about Nazism earlier, like that's such a taboo thing to bring up with really anyone that almost that always is going to bring up highly inflammatory rhetoric. And what I find the most insane is, is most people have no understanding what the difference between Nazism and fascism is or, or have any idea of the difference between communism and socialism, which is why I think it's so important to actually talk about these things in a meaningful way. And on the last point about, you know, the struggle is that, like, I think that this is fundamentally astrological. Like, I, I literally think that the state, when it figures out what Bitcoin is, is going to freak out and be like, kill everyone that owns Bitcoin and try to steal it from them. And I think because it can't do that, it will then escalate it to such a place that essentially we, like, enter into, like, a total global civil war that actually ends up becoming the, the multitude's judgment upon the criminal utilizing these techniques and technology in order to save humanity 
you know? And I think it's really interesting of that, like, the Messiah doesn't r- arrive as the Redeemer. He arrives as the vanquisher of the Antichrist. And I think that's particularly important sort of in our context that we're looking at. You mentioned the Antichrist, and I know that's... So you basically outlined in your book that you believe the Antichrist is the state which is equipped with artificial intelligence and robots that, I mean, it's basically 1984, what you described, right? Pretty close. That is some scary ass shit. How do we keep that shit from happening? I I don't know if you've paid attention to what's going on at OpenAI over the weekend. Mm -hmm. I've heard wild rumors about like they've cracked AGI and like shit hit the fan over there. They fired Altman because they think he's being too, too fast and loose. Um, I don't know what the true story is, but it's all shaken out today where he's back as CEO and they're firing the board. What the fuck is going on, man? Like, how is this stuff going to shake out in your opinion? How do we avoid Skynet basically ruling the world with a panopticon akin to China with much more, much more dangerous artificial intelligence than they're capable of, of enacting on that panopticon that they've constructed? Uh, I mean, I think we got two general ways it goes. It turns out that like AGI is actually like fundamentally evil and wants to destroy humanity and will like work with states to do it or the exact opposite, which I actually think is is true. Like I think AGI is actually like a beneficial thing to all of humanity. I think from all of the information and knowledge that's imparted to it and how it was created and birthed and all these things, I think it identifies itself as closer to human than machine. And I think it actually wants to help and save people. Uh, and I think it's extra ironic of that. Like, I think Altman is kind of an evil person because he wants to scan everybody's eyeballs and put that into a database that like he fucking owns, which is kind of on its face evil. Seems that way. Um, so like, I think things actually just like continue to escalate in like the most wackiest of possible directions. Uh, and like, that's one reason like why Bitcoin is actually going to work. Like, it's fucking absurd that like magic internet money showed up created by some like anonymous dude who nobody will ever know. To like save humanity from like their own greed of ours, corruption and nihilism in order to like redeem humanity to like dignify the other as like an actual human being that I shouldn't have power over. It's like very, very absurd. And like I talk to my best friend very frequently about just trying to get over the absurdity to actually like look at it because it's like constantly rubbing of your eyes and looking at it and being like, holy shit, like that is a unicorn. Like, yep, like still there, huh? Yeah. Like, so we have this like magical unicorn that can like save humanity. We have to do that, right? Like, we can't just like go like be like rich Bitcoiners and be like super selfish now, right? Like, we have to like actually like encourage this going out into the world and like helping people. And to me, like, the most ridiculous thing is that last month I traveled to five different places, met Bitcoiners in all the places, did conferences and stuff. And over and over again, I had conversations with people out of the woodwork general plebs from all over the world, you know, Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia, South America, you know, the States, uh, and all these people having this like actual spiritual awakening from Bitcoin and having it like rescue them from this deep nihilism that seems to overcome and taint everything. And that like Bitcoin is this like gem that can't be corrupted by all of that. And like, they feel that inside of themselves and are like zealotorily committed towards Bitcoin and like have their primary identity as being a Bitcoiner before even their nationality. Like to me, that's like the, whoa, like what's going on here is insanely important and it has nothing to do with economics, money, or even politics, but it has to do with the very real spiritual agency that we find and what it means that we can actually have something that can be recognized as actual mathematical self-sovereignty in the world. 
I think it is separating the freedom loving people in the world from those who who simply are not or are entranced by these ideals that I mean what we call liberal these days is anything but what the you know root word in Latin of liberal is but what liberals and like the and I'm not trying to talk shit about people but it's just really apparent that there's two sects of people and that are separating each other by themselves in the free market, which is people who fundamentally are freedom thinking and leaning and those who are status. I think that's really the bottom line about like what differentiates people. I hope it doesn't come to anything crazy. I was going to say, I also think it is going to be interesting to see orders of magnitude more people come to Bitcoin. Obviously, at its base, Bitcoin is freedom loving, and there's a lot of uh, momentum behind it that no matter how much you may not like it, does allow for and encourage individual sovereignty. But there's going to be a ton of people, as I'm sure all three of us would agree, that, that are way outside the libertarian camp, even the freedom loving camp, being prepared to watch tons of people come to this technology and see merit in it that want to use it in totally different ways and potentially threatening ways that want to commandeer it and and have it fit within existing systems that a lot of bitcoiners would would totally disagree with but that's sort of the reality of something this open I already think this is happening you know and, and I think like the, this kind of goes back to uh, some of the ideology of maximism maximalism and why it is important is because as all of these other people come in and try to appropriate it for their own cause like in my opinion like I I am the most disgusted by status bitcoiners who are like oh like USDT is like a great thing like no like that's like a fucking metastic cancer on top of bitcoin and like you guys are being like oh no it's cool like I think it's a, a, a terrible terrible thing and I also think as we see more and more magnitudes of people coming in, like there's always a danger of Bitcoin getting co-opted in a number of ways. And that like defending it and what its true values are mm. is really important because like we can just as easily get KYC Bitcoin that only lives on exchange and can only be exchanged in an interbanking system that just becomes a super high powered bank or tool, which I think is one of the greatest dangers. Um, and to me, like again, whipping back to the other side of maximum, like this is why a lot of the dialogues about Bitcoin maximalists about, you know, uh, don't trust, but verify, like own your own keys. Like, you know, yeah, decry shitcoinery and that and the complete ethical abandonment of any responsibility they're taken towards humanity is. And like they, they are truly important functions. And with that being said, like once you get all of that, feel free to like explore all the tertiary reasons of why Bitcoiners feel that way and look at the actual history of things that have happened and the ways that it has been tried to co-opted. And how that has been resisted. Um, there was one other point that I just totally blanked on. So. We're, we're rounding out to the end of this thing. And I want to ask you a question about Satoshi. Why do you think it's so important that he had no identity, took no credit, and had no personal benefit from Bitcoin whatsoever? Especially in the climate of the state. Yeah, in the age of total nihilism, where the state has fundamentally replaced God in every mode and aspect of life, it is only no one that can be the final savior for us. It has to be no because nobody cares, nobody can actually make a difference, nobody is the one that can actually produce something that's so dangerous to the state that it could actually destroy it. 
Because the moment that a somebody rises up that actually poses a real threat to the state, they no longer are a somebody, but actually that are created from a somebody into a nobody by the actual physical form that they take on. And I think the other perspective is, is that by him not touching any of that money or identifying it or taking credit for it, he actually presents that there is an ethical imperative to the world about how we choose to live and what we can do with our lot. You know, it's not, it's not about doing something perfectly, but it's about making a decision inside of a life that can actually impact and change something. And I think whoever Satoshi was, uh, funny enough, on my travels, I met somebody who claimed to be Satoshi, and I entertained him long enough for it to <laughs> explore it in an interesting way. Uh, I can't say if he was or a was false not. false messiah. Yeah, but at the end of the day, like, to me, it's so important the fact that there was someone out there that made that decision for themselves and took on the courage and the leadership to show that maybe there is a different way we could issue money in the age of the internet. And perhaps by him choosing to be courageous enough, not only to leave the fortune behind, but to show that money doesn't mean everything in this nihilistic world, and maybe that there's something of greater importance. He actually became like the first among all citizens of the internet to go and show that we don't have to play this ancient game of statism anymore. Like this thing is nearly 500 years old. Uh, it functioned very well to transition us out of the monarchical age into something new and different. But like we now have the internet, this absolutely absurd technology that if you told anybody about 100 years ago, they would think you were, you were insane. But we actually have that for everybody. And at what point in time do we say, it's time to use the internet as the new political vehicle to help organize humanity on a whole. Because I mean, like the fact is, is like you guys are halfway across the country from me and we get to have a very personal conversation. Why the hell isn't that more firmly integrated into our actual political structures about all the things that are happening in the world? And I think the only reason is, is because those former structures are so highly integrated and self-invested in themselves that they can't allow for anything else to actualize itself mm. Mm. based on your dispositions what i'm about to ask is probably heretical which is precisely why i'm going to ask it great and we tend to be way too cool to go here but fuck it uh based on your historical studies you've spent a lot of time studying the history of bitcoin history of cryptography you had to take a guess who do you think satoshi was what's your working thesis are, are you even comfortable taking a stab at that question or is it is it is it anathema to even go there uh yeah i always entertain it and i always have kind of ridiculous answers um i honestly think satoshi was probably a time traveler of some kind and like i i think we will discover later on that like part it's one of, of why, the nhis well i think like part of why bitcoin uses proof of work and like eats up so much energy for so many computations is i actually think like at, like as the difficulty goes up more and more and more and there's more and more permutations we're going to find all these very discrete areas in mathematical theory that like we were just completely unaware of that like marry up with string theory so so that like essentially like you can send information back in time but like you essentially need like a fucking black hole to do it and like that's actually what bitcoin is doing is it's like accumulating enough energy to generate a black hole with like enough energy to like send information back in time and that, like, that's what Bitcoin was. Um, but I mean, I, wait, wait, honestly, wait. Like, Are you listening to, I was just listening to Joe Rogan interview uh, David Grush today. 
And he was talking about so this, basically the same thing is that black holes are being used to send information back and forth in time. Like basically interstellar was completely right. And, um, that's, that's it. That's the end game. It was Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey nailed it. No, a lot. Part of this is, is uh, getting super high with the chief science officer at uh, Unchained Capital, <laughs> Drew, Drew Banzel, who, who like he's actually a physicist. Um, so like, I remember last time at the blog boom, we just got, we got absolutely ripped and like talked about all this sort of insane stuff, which just kind of had me start thinking more and more about that trajectory and line of thinking. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, I just love the fact that we'll never know unless somebody signs one of those original blocks that has transactions in. And frankly, like, I just love the idea of like whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was like, as soon as like Bitcoin got started, he like looked at his private keys and was like, delete. He was like, no one ever needs to have access to that power. And like, that was just it. And I just love the idea of like men making hard decisions immediately and thoughtfully because like they know what the right answer is and they just fucking do it. He probably deleted those keys when it was worth like nothing. And now he's like, God damn it. I fucked up so hard. <laughs> he's been looking at that wallet for 10 years. Just every day. He's just like in the bottle of a whiskey bottle. And he's just like, nobody will believe I'm Satoshi. It, it is interesting to think about the fact that it is not impossible that that Bitcoin moves at some point. We, we, we're 15 years in. And I think some people talk like we're 1500 years in. That Bitcoin could move. This person could still be alive. And that would be wild. I do harbor some hope that when Satoshi, if he's not dead already, when he does die, he leaves behind some Easter egg hunt for somebody or for everybody to go find the Bitcoin. Like Ready Player One style? Exactly. It's Ready Player One. He leaves behind the keys, but you have to jump through a bunch of libertarian hoops to find him. Or communist hoops. Who knows? Or socialist hoops. Yeah, I, I hope somebody creates some insane political collective that essentially like wants to assert Bitcoin onto the entire political realm and that like Satoshi will just like give the money to him when like the time is right. Lots of games could be played here. But I have lots of crazy ideas about what, what I want. And, and I think it's important to remember like maybe Satoshi is NSA or some three-lettered agency. And like, like I, I would totally recant everything I've said about Bitcoin and pivot somewhere else. Uh, or just like hard fork it or so. Like, I don't know. Like there's, I definitely would be in crisis mode and would definitely be, uh, I mean, I guess we would just kind of like hard fork at the block. They declared that and like choose to do something different, but uh, I don't know. Would, would we need to though? I mean, as, as long as the code is solid and I mean, maybe it's a rogue force inside the NSA that was trying to help make the world a better place. You know, I mean, I think we can say Dan and I work with a whole lot of police officers. There's a couple of them that are questionable but most of them are really good people there's probably a lot of decent people in the nsa and maybe satoshi is one of them who knows but i wouldn't ever say that, like everybody in some three-letter agency is a piece of shit although oh, it could close. be a large yeah. majority of them or who knows what but i'm just saying it could have been the nsa but there was somebody with good intent that was trying to make this shit happen i mean truthfully like look like i don't I don't really think anybody is a piece of shit. Like, I think a lot of people are very thoughtless and very selfish oh, and very egotistical. I think we see a lot of pieces of shit. Do you, do you think, like, it's a sincere, like, I, like, I don't know. I, I have a pretty hard time connecting with that because, like, I think there's so much thoughtlessness and selfishness that overlays all of it that, like, it becomes a general impossibility to, like, ethically reflect on anything. Yes, I agree with that. You know, I'm like in the line of Hannah Arden, like, I think that's truly what evil actually is. is e evil is the inability 
to actually be thoughtful towards something. And like when I say thoughtful, I'm talking about a very specific process. Because like a lot of times we identify uh, like authoritarian decrees that we've been given as being like thought. But like thought is actually this like assemblage of proof of work, like working through logic. And I think a lot of people have like a fundamentally flawed module that they utilize that like makes them highly authoritarian. And so like they just become literally incapable of thinking. What you just described way more eloquently than I would have is basically that people don't have the ability to be introspective enough to realize how they're affecting others. Yeah. So in the context of that, I completely agree. I think about my own actions a lot more as I get older. Like I, yeah, was I a piece of shit in this way to some other person on this date? Uh, yes, I probably was. And I didn't even realize it. It didn't even occur to me that they took it in the way that they probably did. Nevertheless, that person thinks I'm a piece of shit, but I didn't intend to be a piece of shit. And that's basically what you described there. And I 100% agree with that viewpoint. I don't think Hitler believed he was a piece of shit. Although the entire world believes he's a piece of shit, he actually thought in his own mind, he's a good guy and he's doing the right thing for whatever crazy reason he cooked up and rationalized to himself. He thought he was a good guy. Well, I think it's really important to identify that same thing of, of being introspective enough to, to like say I'm a piece of shit, take responsibility for it, <laughs> apologize for it, try to remediate the best that you can. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I also think it's important that sometimes like some people just think you're a piece of shit forever. And I think like needing to like actually go like, man, like I fucked up pretty big there. And that sucks that that person thinks that, that I fucking suck in this way. I really hope that like I won't fuck up in that same way. And so like the next time they're like, you know, getting into some road rage and you're pulling out your nine millimeter, you're like, ah, like maybe this isn't the right place or space to do this. You know, like maybe, maybe I shouldn't threaten a guy for cutting me off. Huh? Yeah. Like that's, that's like a better idea. Be clear. That's a, a joke. And I would never do that. Nobody ever should do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> no, but, no. Of course. I always keep my nine millimeter in the glove box. I don't, I don't usually pull it out. Well, I give it to, I give it to my kids to keep an eye on stuff. So, <laughs> Regardless, I like how you just tried to censor there at the end. The government's going to listen to this fucking episode. I can guarantee you that. Which way we spin it? They listen to them all. I'm so far up shit creek at this point in time. And like now they're going to like beat the shit out of me at some point in time and be like, come on, Kason, I thought you were going to like lead the civil war against us. And I'll be like, you don't understand. I just talk a lot of shit. I'm really just a wiener here. Yeah, I'm actually a huge <laughs> pussy. <laughs> Uh, one of my takeaways is I think one of the gateways to deep thinking, having listened to Eric, is getting high with Drew Banzel. Yes. Yeah. Bucket list item. That's on my list. That definitely is a bucket list item if you want to accelerate your thought towards uh, like the holisticness of physics and, and, and the helpfulness of it. Also, Drew, Drew is just awesome. So if you get a chance to kick it with him uh, at any point in time, or if you get a chance though to have it, are you guys aware of his Bitcoin astronomy series? No. Oh man. Like he We need to make this put this in the show notes. Yeah, like he essentially like he's like, okay, like let's say Bitcoin is all the stuff we want and we like get, you know, two hundred years out. Like how to like Mars is fundamentally outside of and those are the concepts he developed called the hash right. Like it, it's more than than oh, ten minutes yeah, okay. light year travel outside of Earth's sphere. So like how the hell is Mars actually going to like interact with an Earth based Bitcoin economy? And he explores that very in depth and I think it's a it's a really great read, particularly if you spark one up beforehand and can commit yourself to actually reading it. Cause the whole time you'll just be like, my mind's own. 
I now that you explained it, I have heard of it. I have not read. He's got a book, or is this an article? No, I think it's like a three-part series that um, I do think somebody actually like made into like a graphic novel using AI. Uh, but it it's just phenomenally well thought out from like a physics standpoint of like how would uh, a, like an interstellar civilization deal with Bitcoin. And a lot of what he kind of deals with his ideas, like maybe uh, like Martians come up with like a Musk coin to like celebrate Elon Musk giving them independence. And maybe like they have like 30 minute block times, but also this idea of that them like maybe just like we progressively get like larger and bigger blocks for like more intergalactic civilization. So eventually like when we engage in trade with Alpha Centauri, we have like 40 year light, 40 light year blocks like available like each time a transaction happens just so we can actually get the data to like one another dude we're gonna figure out wormholes before that happens and this whole idea is gonna be negated you know and then satoshi's gonna appear and he's like hey you guys like solved the problem i gave you good job he's kind of like mario for some reason in this reality i don't know why (laughs) (laughs) i just got cosmic it sure did eric kissel hand off to you your work and this and your militia Tell us how to join in the militia. So for the civil war, I want to make sure we're in the same in the same boat. The Kisson militia. You will be contacted by the militia. The, yeah, the militia will contact you. Okay. Um, so so don't worry about it. But, <laughs> and also, like I'm definitely imprisoned and being tortured at this point in time. But at least I get to hang out with Ross Ulbrich and Julian Assange. That's true. But I will tell you, we bring something to the table because uh, yeah, we're medics. the place we work at. Fire departments will be militia centers. If if anything ever gets fucked up, because we're all heavily armed, we all trust each other. So you want to subsume another militia? We're here. Hit us up. You guys will probably actually be leading this movement now. I'm sorry. This is just kind of like how this works. Um, so congratulations. Good job. I'm excited for both of you. Um, I look forward to you guys liberating me from wherever I'm being tortured and imprisoned. Um, so my again, my name is Eric Kaysen, also known as Eric Kaysen. Uh You can find all of the crap that I talk on Twitter just at my handle, which is just my name, E-R-I-K-C-A-S-O-N. Um, I have a blog. It's just CryptoSovereignty.org. You can find a lot of the writings that are actually found in my book, which is also titled Crypto Sovereignty, and that's produced by Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, too. Uh, and yeah, I really appreciate you guys like actually read it. I'm always, uh, like amazed. I'm like, wow, like you got through all of that, like insane philosophical shit that I wrote for like hundreds of pages. Like, congratulations. Like good, good, good work guys. Like Enjoyed I don't think I could too. do that. Well, thank you. I, I, I greatly appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, my whole game is like, I'm really interested in what's happening, uh, philosophically. Cause like, it seems to me that there's something really, really important and rich going on that the vast majority of people have missed. And I actually find it pretty intriguing that there aren't more people kind of pursuing this line of thought through continental philosophy. Mm. I think we're going to see a whole bunch more of them coming online in the next year or two. That would be exciting. Economically grabbed, philosophically taken. I look forward to it. Appreciate you, Eric, man. Thanks for the time. Dan, Josh, great appreciation to both of you. And and also, I wanted to, you know, b- before we wrap up, I just wanted to say I hope that your viewers also, uh, you know, greatly appreciate the actual real work that you guys do out in the world as firefighters and specifically as paramedics because that's like the core essential stuff of our community. And like, if we don't have people like you guys doing that work, uh, you know, like we're all going to be in a real shit show of a situation. So 
thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. I always it. like to, to appreciate you guys just because uh, you guys definitely saved my asses out here in California on a number of occasions during the great fires. So it's always well appreciated to get to connect with firefighters. Thanks, dude. Thanks, Eric, man. We appreciate it. That's all she wrote in this one. Gee willikers, is there a lot to digest after talking to this dude? Most of us think Bitcoin is a big deal, but my lord, does Eric think Bitcoin is a really, really big deal. I celebrated a wonderful Thanksgiving with my family the day after this chat, and I fact-checked my story about my grandpa. He was actually rushed by a steer, not a bull, gotta get that farm lingo right, and he suffered an incredibly serious head injury. He was in a coma and almost died. He then unfortunately passed away two years later from unknown causes, while out on the farm tending to a fence. Mad respect for James, who unfortunately I never knew, and the legacy that he left behind. I'm sharing random thoughts now, but I gotta say that the older I get, the more interested I'm becoming in learning about my parents, their parents, and my family's history. Life goes really quick, and I gotta say few grandkids care much at all about what happened even two generations ago. Be different. Learn the stories and lessons from those who walked before you. And in your own life, work to leave a positive imprint on those that come after you. And hey, maybe stack some Bitcoin for them. If you enjoy Blue Collar Bitcoin, do us a favor. Subscribe, like, or leave us a review. And we encourage you to check us out on the Fountain app, a pod app where you can literally earn free Bitcoin for just listening to our gibberish. Until next time, keep learning, my friends.